Christina, how are you? You know what? I started to say Kara, and I had to, oh, it's the K. It is. I'm deeply flattered, though. <laughs> Welcome back to the Sausage of Science, Christina. It's great to have you with me again as a co-host. How are you? You know, uh, school, the, the quarter starting for us at uh, University of Washington, we're on quarter system. So we officially start tomorrow. I've been prepping for my colloquium and general exam. That's happening next week. So I'm trying not to panic about that. Ah, I think I'm ready. Yeah. I, I think part of my panic and this, this actually feeds right back into the podcast because I tend to like, I try to assign books in my courses that are new so then I can interview them and I keep trying to like not do all I I, I sign a book a week for the grad course it's a lot of reading yeah. one semester I had to read them all but then once I read them all <laughs> I, I just switch out a few of them each time but this week I had to read a whole bunch of stuff I I, I hit I hit a week where I had to literally read a book and then all the articles for the other other class much like my students have to do, and I wasn't prepared for it. So I've been like, where's the PDF that I can listen to really fast of this book? And they don't have yep. one. And the accessibility oh. function online doesn't work. So I have to read it with my eyes, my old eyes. Oh, God, oh. I'm complaining again. Let's bring well, our guest on. I, I think it's okay to complain about limited accessibility. I think we should always carry the torch for that. Okay. You invited... Uh, today's guest. We met really briefly at the AABAs at, in Reno this past year. She's kind, she's brilliant. I went and then had to read everything I possibly could about, about her work and became absolutely fascinated in microbiome variation and what that means for different health outcomes and, and how we've evolved to, to have a gut microbiome specifically, what impacts it, how it does what it do. I joke on my syllabus when I tr come up with topics and we're doing a microbiome section. Microbiome is the new milk. And then, of course, yeah. milk was the new cortisol, right? <laughs> Whatever the plenary session was last year, cortisol was the new sleep, whatever the, yeah. The reality is the microbiome is probably what is like influencing all my complaining right now. It's absolutely and totally in charge of me. And, uh, we need to do a lot more research on the microbiome. I'm I'm not even joking. I I really want. I'm waiting for the cognitive uh, studies of how the microbiome is influencing folks. But so far, it's just pipe dream. So Liz Malott is an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, Dr. Malott is interested in understanding host-mediated microbiome variation with and between species. She majored in both biology and music at Grinnell College, graduated from there in 2006, and has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And then she did several postdocs, including ones at Northwestern Dartmouth and Vanderbilt before starting at WashU in 2022. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. Thank you. Let's just get started with the way we always start. It's the sausage of science. It's a whole metaphor on how the sausage is made. We want to know how you make your research. And you got a doozy here. One of these papers made me really like I had to read close. So I got some questions for you on how that sausage was made. But first, we start <laughs> off with you, the scientist, and you as an ingredient, right? Because you're going to have an influence. So tell us about your, your background, how you got interested in anthropology, microbiome how you came to St. Louis? So I 
went to grad school, um, starting grad school as a primate foraging ecologist. I was really interested in how primates meet their energetic needs and like how they make decisions about where to go in the forest and things like that. Very classical primate foraging ecology. But I had had a lot of experience um, with molecular biology and DNA related studies. So I said, hey, you know, we can use DNA metabarcoding to look at the insect component of primate diets, which was really at that point understudied. My dissertation sort of focused on using DNA metabarcoding to identify which insects capuchins are consuming and then better understand the contributions of insects to their foraging behavior, which sounds totally unrelated to the microbiome. But uh, I was doing my dissertation at the University of Illinois in the early 2010s, which is when microbiome research was sort of exploding. And one of the places it was exploding was at the University of Illinois. Oh, so sweet. Yeah, our sequencing center was doing a ton of methods development. And so I'm over here doing my DNA metabarcoding, and they're like, hey, Liz, we can add this 16S primer set to your study for no more money. It's going to cost you the same. And I was like, well, okay. And 16S, it's the primer set we use to get an idea of gut microbiome composition. Can you tell us what DNA metabarcoding is before you, you go on? Yeah, yeah. DNA metabarcoding is this idea that you can take short segments of DNA anywhere from 150 to 400 base pairs long. And from that, there's enough variation to identify what species it's from. This has been used for diet studies where we can't observe what an animal's eating. Like when you're watching a primate, you see it take its hand, take it from a leaf, put it in its mouth. You cannot see what insect it was eating. It's just not possible. Everything that goes in comes out the other end. So the DNA is there. And we use for insects, we use cytochrome oxidase subunit one, a mitochondrial gene. So it's really highly abundant. We can use that to say what insects are present and how frequently are they eating them. And we can do this with plants, vertebrates, fungi, all sorts of things. And this same principle can also be applied to bacteria. Just to envision this, you you must have a giant refrigerator full of poop. Is that right? A minus 80 freezer, two of them. Just, just yeah. checking. Yep. Cause that's, <laughs> I'm reading Craig Stanford's new chimpanzee and I'm like, oh, she's collecting, they're getting, she's getting poop samples. This is where the. Poop sickles. Poop sickles. That's right. Awesome. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, there's this barcoding marker, basically 16S RNA gene. It's a ribosomal subunit. It's really good at discriminating bacteria from one another. So I went ahead and amplified that because the sequencing center told me to, not because I was interested in it. And that was the most fascinating data to me from my dissertation. And I was hooked. I was like, microbes, how microbes contribute to energetics. The microbiome of a white-faced capuchin monkey looks really different from any of the other primates that we had studied at that point. Now we know it looks really similar to other insect or insect feeding platyrines. But at the time it was kind of like, whoa, this is weird. I said, okay, I'm going to keep going with this gut microbiome stuff. And I did my first postdoc in Katie Amato's lab at Northwestern and did keep doing a bunch of non-human primate microbiome work. But 
We were also doing a bunch of comparative studies to look at the evolution of the microbiome. So we started, I started working with humans and thinking more and more about the human microbiome. And a lot of the studies looking at the human microbiome are biomedical studies. They sort of miss part of the puzzle, which is the part that the anthropologist in me was like, hey, we can actually talk to people and ask them about their lived experiences and get a better idea of how that's shaping the gut microbiome. That's how I got to microbiomes. How I got to Mississippi was also serendipitous. I finished my first postdoc and um, went and did a teaching postdoc at Dartmouth. Teresa Gildner happened to be there at the same time as a postdoc. And we got to talking about her project and she was like, hey, I can see when there are a lot of parasites in the stool sample using microscopy, but how do I see when there are just a couple of parasites and not a lot of eggs? And I was like, DNA metabarcoding is for you. We did this small pilot study um, and that sort of spurred our research collaboration. She went from Dartmouth straight to Wash U. I took a side trip to another postdoc at Vanderbilt where I got a lot of experience doing human microbiome work. Um, and now I've ended up in the biology department at Wash U. And so it's really easy and fun to collaborate with somebody who's just across campus. So fascinating because I was wondering what inspired you to branch out into humans when you were starting out with non-human primates. That's that is awesome. And the the first paper we pulled is the one that you're first author on, and it's looking at gut microbiome for 2,756 2, samples. You've got about 730 kids. We're looking at ages, birth to 12 years old. What was the process for doing a big study like this? I mean, that's a that's a pretty hefty sample. What was that process like? Yeah, um, it, it was a process. <laughs> I actually started with just doing a pretty comprehensive literature search to find all of the papers that have child microbiome data from kids who are pre-puberty um, and with a giant spreadsheet, 50 or so studies. Where, you know, I looked at, did the study of child microbiome data? What ages were there? Where was the study? Who were the authors? What other data is available? with the gut microbiome sequences, which people are collecting these data sets for a lot of different reasons. So there could be anything from antibiotic use to do you have a pet to did you enjoy your first grade class experience? Um, so, and then I took all that information. Um, I narrowed it down to the US because we were interested in this question of race and ethnicity, and it was simpler to sort of constrain how people would be defining race and ethnicity, whereas what we define as race and ethnicity here in the United States is not the same as it gets defined in Europe or in China or whatnot. And then I also was only interested in studies that had kids who didn't have any known disease phenotype because again, I wanted to sort of constrain the variation and reduce the number of variables. Then I had my list of possible studies. For some of those studies, all of the data was publicly available. The sequences were publicly available. All of the metadata, um, both race and ethnicity, but all of the other variables we wanted to control for, um, which 
was infant feeding history, C-section versus vaginal birth and age. Those were all available. But for most of the studies, all of that information wasn't publicly available because it's a lot of private information that people don't necessarily give consent to post on the sequence read archive. And so I then did a lot of emailing of the authors of those papers. Um, and some people never wrote back. Some people wrote back and said, hey, you know, this really isn't something we're interested in. And some people wrote back and were really excited about it and really willing to share the data that they had. And then for people who did contact, who, who did respond positively, for some of those folks, we had to sign data use agreements between, I was at Vanderbilt at the time, between Vanderbilt and their university. For some folks, I had to go and talk to their entire study teams. Some of these were like really big, large studies where I had to present what I planned to do to a room full of 20 people. Some of the studies, one study had an outside ethical review board that I had to talk to um, and get their consent. But throughout the process, I was really clear about the questions we were going to ask and how we were going to approach it um, so that people could A, decide if this was something that was within their informed consent documents that they had given their participants, and B, did it overlap with any questions they were planning on asking, and C, did it sort of, were they comfortable with what we were going to do? And then I offered authorship to everyone I contacted as well. And some people took me up on that and some didn't. Hmm. Um, so the co-authors on the paper are the people who were interested in authorship. That's yeah. an interesting approach and 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 really important because because I mean you're using samples from from kids right so we want to make sure that I mean we want to make sure we're ethical but kids can't add they don't have the, the same kind of agency so so I appreciate you sharing that so in terms of what you found you well let, let me ask you what's your price I mean it's right in it's right in the title so yeah. you you found a relationship at three months of age between microbiome and race, ethnicity. So can you unpack that? Tell us a little bit about that. And then what are the implications for that? I mean, we can maybe imagine it from what you've already said, just comparing different uh, feeding regimens might produce. Mm -hmm. So what you find and, and where do we go from there? There have been several studies of adult gut microbiomes that uh, both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. that have found an association between race and ethnicity and gut microbiome variation, whether that's like the taxonomic composition as a whole or individual sample diversity or the relative abundance of specific species of bacteria. We just sort of knew the picture for adults. And we were interested in trying to figure out when does that variation appear? Um, and we broke our sample down into various age bins that have to do with various developmental milestones and what we know about gut microbiome maturation. If we look before three months, and more than half of our samples were from infants who were younger than three months of age. If we look before three months, we don't see any effect of race or ethnicity on the gut microbiome. It's just not a factor that's structuring the gut microbiome. But then if we look after three months, we start to see an effective race and ethnicity. So to me, that immediately said, this is not something that's present at birth. It's not something that's happening early. It's not due to differences in um, 
genetic background or host physiology or maternal transmission of microbes. It's, it's not, it's actually most of the microbes that are different after three months are not microbes that we know are maternally transmitted. They're microbes that we know we're picking up from the environment. Um, is, is there, are there any relationships with socioeconomic status? It's not something I thought of before, but as you, as you mentioned this, I, I wonder. Yeah. So, oh man, that's a question I, I, I've been asked several times and I, I wish I could give you a good answer. Socioeconomic status was not collected in comparable ways across the studies that we include in this analysis. So I'm sure it does have an impact, but I can't tell you what it is or for sure whether it's there. Um, but that would play into these things that we think are causing this variation. There are a lot of external factors that we know are associated with gut microbiome variation. Um, diet is one. And between four and six months of age is when you're transitioning to solid food. And the way that looks will look differently depending on what food resources you have available to you. It's also three months is about the time you start daycare or other childcare. It is also when you're spending more time outside the house, coming into contact with what might be differences in the built environment, also your exposure to natural environments and whether or not they're polluted. What about pets? Did you ask me about pets? We don't have data on whether or not people had pets in most of the studies. Um, that has been found to be a big factor in other studies, though. When you said something interesting earlier, you were talking about these microbiomes, this variation that you're seeing isn't coming from maternally transmitted is that pathogen is that what you're saying what what are those how are they different than than ones in, in the environment not the you know super nitty-gritty but what are we talking about in terms of differences there yeah so there are during the birth process and then shortly after with skin-to-skin contact and breastfeeding and just being primarily held by mom or dad, there are some microbes that are preferentially transmitted during that period. These tend to be things like bifidobacteria, which are really important for digesting the proteins that are found in breast milk and formula. Um, and they're these very early colonizers of the gut microbiome. So when you're talking about the importance of that three month window, it's because it's setting the stage more or less for their capacity to have a functioning gut microbiome and what that's going to look like later in life. So knowing that you've got that, that variation that has that corollary with race and ethnicity it right in that window could, could be a really big deal for, for what it means for gut health for, for them in adulthood as well. Yeah, and we know that the, the gut microbiome really rapidly changes across the entire first year of life, um, and that that sets the stage for at least childhood gut microbiome composition. We haven't been doing gut microbiome research long enough to have kids who've been followed to adulthood. But so the big studies have looked at how that first year of life, the development of the gut microbiome contributes to your risk for asthma type one diabetes, other autoimmune disorders. Um, and there's, there's a, there are some pretty strong links. So that entire first year is really important. We're gonna, we're gonna go backwards in your timeline to a paper that, to, that it sounds like from your origin story, you started working on before 
this mo this more recent one. So that 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 article that we just discussed is open access in PLOS biology, and that came out this year. Um, you also have a paper with Tara and Teresa. Any other co-authors? Yeah, Isabella Recca, who was an undergrad in Tara's lab. Thank you. And this paper is called Evidence and Effects of Neglected Parasitic Infections Among a Small Preliminary Sample of Children from Rural Mississippi. So it's new data uh, since we talked to Tara. Um, and and uh, so let's just start with why do a study in the U.S. where it's supposedly more sanitary for helmets and protists? Uh, these are things we should see. Uh, in the U.S., and then how do they affect people, and why Why are we concerned? It's not that these parasites aren't here in the U.S. It's that nobody has looked for them for a long time, um, since the 80s. Nobody really talks about them because they've stopped looking for them. I grew up in rural West Virginia, and I and I, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. And I remember um, now everyone knows how old I am, by the way. No worries. <laughs> I'm 52. So I'm still probably the oldest person usually on the pod. Yeah. Uh, but I remember growing up, we'd have these public service announcements and like they would hand, give us handouts in elementary school that were from the health department. And they were like, don't go outside barefoot. You have to wear shoes outside. And it was because there was hookworm and kids were getting hookworm in rural West Virginia. It was definitely there then. Um, and I think there's this myth that the United States is super sanitary and we don't have any illnesses unless you don't wash your hands. Um, but it these helmets and these protists and these other parasites that live in the soil, they are normal, healthy members of a soil community, a soil microbiome. Okay. So it's the words that we're using. Cause I, I do know about hookworms and did yeah. raise children and did have a knowledge of hookworms, but I, I didn't uh, know they were helmets or, or, or protists. So that excuse my ignorance and proceed. Uh, yeah. 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 Hookworms are helmets. Also, you might have heard about pinworms, um, which also are commonly diagnosed in the U.S. Uh, those are a roundworm. They're also a nematode, which is a helminth. So yeah, these are things that are definitely there. They happily live in any soil where the summers are wet and hot and the winters are mild. I'm sorry, Alabama is going to have them. <laughs> um, no doubt. It's definitely you know, hot and definitely humid. I'm cracking up at this whole scene because I, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, so major metropolitan city. And I remember around the same time frame, actually. And I remember, yeah, they're talking about don't go out, be careful with your kids running around barefoot, you know, especially in the summers, because you're going to have all sorts of things. You're going to have hookworm, ringworm. I remember, you know, friends of mine actually getting intestinal parasites, but it's it's so easily dealt with right. that we tend not to think of it or it tends not to be something that we we think of as being a, a quote-unquote problem in the in the, the space where we think ah yeah this is really prolific they're everywhere everybody gets them it's also frequently not talked about and I think because you there is some stigma around socioeconomic status and whether or not there's a risk for helminth infection and so a lot of people who may or may not 
experience that type of infection may not be talking about it with with their friends or or situations like that and because you can take a couple of pills and and get rid of it so like yeah. most stigma infections that people don't want to talk about if you can make it go away and there's stigma around it you do so yeah and sort of what these parasite infections do is they cause they can cause some malnutrition they can cause anemia because nausea, diarrhea, we know from studies outside the U.S. that their presence can shift the composition of the microbiome, the gut microbiome. Um, we don't know whether the results of that are good or bad. Um, we know that some of them can increase intestinal inflammation and decrease intestinal barrier function. It's really only the really heavy infections that cause symptoms that people notice. You can have light infections that your immune system clears that the symptoms just sort of mimic other common childhood diseases. And it's those sort of light infections that we can detect with the DNA barcoding analysis that you might not be able to pick up on microscopy. So for, for listeners who, who either did not hear Teresa or Tara on the pod, and, and those are older episodes, so there's probably new info, who who did you collect samples from, right? What did you find? Yeah, so we collected samples primarily from children in the Mississippi Delta. These are from small towns and rural areas. We have, it, it, it's a small study, it's about 25 kids. Um, and we found that, we found that about 38% of kids are infected with some sort of helminth or protist. So the ones we're finding are platyhelminths, which is a group of helminths or worms that include tapeworms. We're also finding nematodes, which is a group of worms that includes roundworms. And then we're finding blastocystis, which is a protist that has been associated with um, decreased intestinal health. Um, there's a lot of studies about blastocystis in the gut microbiome, and there are a lot of debates about whether or not its presence is good or bad, and there's sort of a million different subtypes of it, and then there's this whole morass that now I have to wade into now that we're finding it in these kids. And then we're also finding cryptosporidium, which is a protist that is pathogenic. And then also in an earlier paper, we find that the, the helminth infections in particular are associated with increases in intestinal inflammation. So you've, this, this is really fascinating. And there are really an, a huge number of folks working on this, this project with you. <laughs> how, how do you coordinate all that? How do you, how do you navigate that type of work where it's, You've got a number of institutions that are here. I'm sure there are many different personalities and specialties that, that need to be coordinated. How do you handle all that? Yeah, I think the product as a whole, I think we're up to five institutions now. And yeah, a lot of different folks. Where we get lucky is that everyone is super nice and collegial and collaborative, enthusiastic and organized. <laughs> and this is key. Um, so we really um, try to be proactive about communicating sort of who is writing up what data, who is planning to present what data, who's working on what grants, because um, we're also we're working with some geologists now, um, and they have 
their own places they apply for grants. Um, and we just try to make sure that we keep lines of communication open and frequent. Um, so to give you sort of a more concrete example, um, for abstracts for HBAs and ABAs this year, we have been having reach abstract meeting Zooms where like 20 of us get on a Zoom call and we first walked through everyone's plan A abstract and everyone's plan B abstract. And then we basically played Jenga until we figured out something that everyone could do that wasn't overlapping and that was really complementary, so that we were all presenting different aspects of the data. And then those meetings have been continued as people have been writing up their abstracts. Um, and these meetings include undergrads, research technicians, grad students, postdocs, and faculty. Everyone at all levels is on these calls. So yeah, we're helping each other revise the abstracts right now, which is super helpful for the undergrads, but it's also helpful for the rest of us because we'll be reading, like I'll be reading an abstract from one of Teresa's students and say, hey, we have this piece of data that we analyzed that we sort of put on the shelf for later and it fits perfectly here. Let's stick it in. Yeah, I, I do. we do a lot of abstract workshopping in my lab, but we've never extended that beyond I like the, the Jenga metaphor and yeah. I I I want to put in a plug for the webinar that the the student reps for HBA are organizing where they are doing a webinar with um, Amanda Vale who's a program coordinator and Josh Nodgrass who's our current president on how to write abstracts for the the meeting and I know that a lot of students haven't had experience with that and and it all it helps all of us in doing those sorts of exercises. So, so, so I applaud that. It's very cool. And I'm going to have to, one of the, the key word that you mentioned there and the one that like stings me a little bit is that organized thing. I'm starting to like, what, I'm like, why am I not getting invited to more collaborative projects across time and space? Oh, I'm not very organized. Well, anyway, uh, as Christina pointed out, these things are everywhere. And yet, um, you're working in uh, the Mississippi Delta. So, so what did you find? What's special about what you found? Like, why there? And what what does it say about protists and helmets in in, in general? At, uh, if they're everywhere, like, what did you find? Yeah. So we were particularly interested in the Mississippi Delta because it is a lower resource community, not just in terms of access to food and quality education, but also medical care. Um, there is one pediatrician practice for our entire study area, which is a rather broad area. Um, and so we suspect that if kids are getting infected with these helminths the, and other parasites, that the impacts are gonna be more long lasting because they'll be infected for longer before they actually get treatment than you would see in an area with greater access to medical care. Um, we are, however, um, expanding the study um, to other locations. Um, we've started collecting data in southeastern Illinois as well, um, where there is better access to medical care, um, but we also think there might be exposures to some different helmets due to agricultural runoff, as well as um, an interaction with pollution exposure. 
I see a, a big future of lots of studies all over the world where we can sort of get an, an ecological aspect to our biocultural studies, right? That, that is the hope. Maybe not worldwide, but at least in a couple of locations in the U.S. And speaking about pollutants, you have you have so many great papers that have come out recently that we're going to actually switch to another one. And this other paper that you're involved in is looking at specifically how the gut microbiome is influenced by pollutants. And this time you're looking at gut microbiome gut microbial diversity in female predominant interstitial lung disease, which is not a corner I thought we were going to be turning there, but that is just absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of sex hormones in lung disease? Uh, talk about what, you know, interstitial lung diseases are. I, I know they, they cause scarring in the lungs, but can you go a little more, more into that? And then, yeah, what, what does sex hormones have to do with it? Yeah, so I will preface this, but this is not my area of expertise. Um, and so everything I've learned has been learned through through conversations with my collaborators. So I might not be 100% on the mark, but... Well, bird's eye view. They're supposed to go read the paper anyway. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, so interstitial lung disease or... Um, I think what we see more commonly is pulmonary fibrosis is any sort of long lasting lung damage as a result of um, either exposure to something that's infected the lungs or due to exposure to a chemical or something that's caused damage to the lung. It's basically the process of um, collagen causing lesions on the lung that then decrease lung function. Um, and from epidemiological studies, we know that men are more likely to have interstitial lung disease, but that women have more severe scarring and worse clinical outcomes when they do get it. Um, and so what my collaborators have teased out is that estrogen and prostaglandins are sort of mediating this interaction. They're sort of kickstarting this complex immune function pathway that causes inflammation and causes collagen to start being produced and deposited in the lungs. So how does the gut microbiome influence that? Yeah, so this is where I know more about what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that gut microbiome does is gut microbes, we have lots and lots of different microbes and they are very good at finding a compound and doing something to it to make food for themselves. One of the things that they will happily break down and use as nutrients for themselves is what we call conjugated estrogen. Conjugated estrogen are estrogens that have had a molecule added to them that make the body know that they should be excreted. There are some gut microbes that come along and say, oh, that's a nice molecule you added to that estrogen. I will take that. They use this enzyme called beta-glucuronidase to, to deconjugate the estrogen. 
And that deconjugated estrogen can then be reabsorbed by the body and enter the bloodstream again. So these gut microbes are effectively increasing the amount of circulating estrogen in the blood. There are other gut microbes though that inhibit this reaction um, by stealing other products um, that those microbes that wanna eat the estrogens need. Um, and so there's this microbe lactobacillus that the presence of lactobacillus actually keeps estrogen conjugated and allows it to be excreted. So lactobacillus decreases circulating estrogen in the blood. And so what we found in an earlier study um, is that what gut microbes a mouse has determines how bad, how severe lung fibrosis is. Um, and we found this kind of by accident. Um, my collaborator, Wonder Drake, was doing a bleomycin challenge um, where she um, has the mice inhale bleomycin to sort of induce lung fibrosis. And she had mice housed in normal mouse housing facilities. She had some housed in a specific pathogen-free facility, and then she had some housed in a germ-free facility. Things happened as she expected in the normal mouse facility. Mice who inhaled bleomycin got lung fibrosis. Things sort of happened as she expected in the specific pathogen-free facility. Some mice got lung fibrosis, some didn't. And then the germ-free facility, none of the mice got lung fibrosis. Um, and so she was like, what is going on here? The only difference is whether or not these mice have any gut microbes. Um, and so we did a big study where we transplanted gut microbes from specific pathogen-free mice into germ-free mice and normal mouse housing into germ-free mice. And basically what we were finding is there are some bacteria, these lactobacillus, that are present in more, that are more abundant in the specific pathogen-free facility that are being, are protective against lung fibrosis. And these are the same bacteria that are lowering circulating estrogen levels in the blood. And so what we think is happening is that individuals who get lung fibrosis, the amount of circulating estrogen in their blood determines how severe that lung fibrosis becomes, and the gut microbes are actually modulating estrogen levels in a way that can increase or decrease severity. That is so friggin' cool. Yeah. What's next on the horizon for you? Yeah, so um, one of the things we're sort of really diving into is the impact of environmental contamination on the gut microbiome. and how that then impacts health. We're doing that both by looking at heavy metals and pesticides present in soil and people's contact with them, um, but also we are looking in the fecal samples themselves at what pesticides and heavy metals are present in those um, and looking at how that's changing the gut microbiome. And as part of that project, we are also, we just added on at the end of the summer, an arm where we're going to be looking at, um, this is all part of the REACH study, this big giant study. Um, so we added on an arm where we're going to be looking at exposure to pathogens and pollutants in water supplies. Um, so this is actually driven by our participants, the community members who are part of the study. 
have been really concerned about pesticide use in their community and heavy metals, and particularly the fact that they think their water is not treated the way it should be, that it's coming out of the tap brown or it's coming out of the tap smelling really strongly of chemicals. And so we're working with somebody in engineering here at Wash U to actually test the water and test the bacteria and other bugs in the biofilms in people's caps. So we're really interested to see what people are getting exposed to and if it's shifting their gut microbiome and if it's causing inflammation or not. Yeah. And I know we have a lot of water security folks in the Human Bio Association, but not, and not to steal their thunder, but if you're interested, we have a global water security and water safety institute that just started here. And that's similar to some of the work they're doing, especially the ones that are doing cultural work among um, First Nations and, and sort of the quality of their soil water and stuff like that. But um, I won't add to your, your, your list, your to-do list of studies, much as I want to find a way to do microbiome research um, in my own work and, and not actually do it, but instead just send it to you to tell me what cool stuff uh, you find. We have a final question that, that sort of circles back to how the sausage is made, how the scientist is made, and you skipped straight to grad school. So you did not tell us about your music major uh, oh, that no. went along with your bio major. So I'm wondering if when we bring back the HBO talent show for the annual meeting, you might present some sort of music for us or or the, the real question is simply, if and when we ever do this, what will be the the talent that you display? Yes, uh, so you did do a deep dive into my CV. I do have a music major. I am a classical pianist by training. So um, I guess that's something that people consider talent. Do you not? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Is there anything that we did that we didn't touch on that you'd like to share with our listeners? I guess I should probably mention that I have not left monkeys behind and that I also have a project running looking at contributions of the gut microbiome to female energetics during pregnancy and lactation and langers. So the monkeys are still there, even cool. if humans have taken most of my attention for now. Love the monkeys. Yeah. Keep keep it going. Well, thank you, Liz, so much for being on the show. And do, do you have a, um, a social media site or anything where you want to direct listeners, a uh, website, anything like that? Yeah, I've, I've given up on Twitter, so I don't have Twitter, but I do have a website for the lab. It is malot-lab.github.io. Thank you I mean, so much. Thank you no, so much. I'm just no kidding. No sickles for you, no sir. No sickles yeah, for me. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thanks.